Hello, everyone. I am Natalie Kra, your host. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. Our next guest needs no introduction. She has been teaching yoga for over 50 years. To say she's a yoga master is an understatement. Her name is Judith Lasseter. She is the author of many books. She is known for her great teaching programs and restorative yoga. Judith has been a major influence in the yoga world. And to me, she's an example of a great human and a great light on planet Earth. Tune in to this special conversation with Judith and find out about her many talents. Feel her frequency and uplift your life. Needless to say, it's an incredible honor to host her as a guest on Life on Earth podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy Judith Lasseter. Welcome to Life on Earth, The Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace, and global equality, one earthling at a time. Hello, Judith. Thank you for being here in Life on Earth podcast. I'm, I'm very thrilled about this conversation that we're going to have today. I've been wanting to have you in the podcast for a while. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have a request as we start. Whenever mm-hmm. I, I give a talk or have an interview or teach a class, I uh, and sometimes have a meeting, uh, I I always like to start with a minute of silence. So if it's okay with mm-hmm. you, I'd like to ring my bells and have us all sit for about a minute yes. or so. And, and while yes. we're doing that, I'd like to suggest that your listeners and you might enjoy this technique, which I really like, which is I imagine that I'm going to the very center of my brain from the sides, from the top to bottom, the front to the back, that I'm resting in the center of my brain. And at the same time, I'm completely releasing my tongue. And I can, after this, I can tell you why I suggest these things, but I want people to just experience Mm -hmm. it. So if it's okay, shall I explain the technique? Yes, please. All right. So we know that most of the time we're all lost in spinning brain, spinning thoughts, and that actually true creativity and creative thinking is kind of rare in our day. If you're like me, (laughs) mostly I'm thinking what's next, what's next, what's next. Apparently it's my favorite mantra. So Mm -hmm. uh, I find for me, when I imagine the, the quiescence, I recognize and remember the silence that's at my core, and I just think about going to the center of the brain, I find it it causes in me sort of a natural introversion and natural self-reflection that I like. And then I discovered that if I let go of my tongue, I completely mm-hmm. flatten and relax my tongue that I get even deeper. I have a deeper awareness of the inherent silence that is at our core. And then I thought about it sort of neurologically that we may not realize, but the tongue is a, is a muscle, it's a digestive organ, 
and it is involved in speech. It's a very important part of our being. And that when we're thinking, the tongue has a special connection to the brain. And when we're thinking, there are micro movements going on in our tongue. And you may have seen this or done it yourself when you were a child that children learning to write language is about the tongue and the brain. So when kids are learning to write in early school, they sometimes when they're writing, their tongue comes out of their mouth and they're writing with their tongue and you see it. Yeah. You've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So the tongue, when you think, you think in words, that's why and you speak. And so you generally people don't remember much before four or five when more thinking is really connected. To <laughs> uh, and there are places where that connection completely disappears. And one of them comes to mind is Washington, D.C. But that was my joke. <laughs> bad jokes. But yeah, I can guarantee there'll be no more bad jokes. But it's just so <laughs> I find a combination of imagining the brain, the center mm-hmm in that silent quiet space and then letting go of my tongue really allows and brings out my hidden shimmering silence in my being and I'm wondering I want to check in with you I'm wondering if you found this simple technique interesting or useful yes well I I absolutely love just having that quiet space even so such short time just I feel like I come back to myself and I also felt my heart space which was a really beautiful thing that's the next step but I didn't want to overload (laughs) the thing finding I've been practicing for 53 years and teaching Mm -hmm. and what I find is I used to do very long single meditations in a day but Mm been doing the last few years is what I call a mini like m-i-n-i mini meditation all day long when I think of it Mm. I go to that space when I'm that's beautiful waiting in a red light putting on my shoes walking sick and I say can I be there while I walk downstairs to the kitchen you know just it's many many times a day begins to create I think for me at least it's true a river and not mm-hmm. just getting off and meditating. Although I sometimes yeah. like to normally sit, but I like this. Uh, my teaching now is really all about, it's all great what happens in my yoga room, but where that's my, that's my vacation. That's my refuge. And when I go, but when I go out into the world, into my relationships, the intimate ones are always the hardest. The gurus are always the people closest to you. But when <laughs> I go into the world, can I actually maintain that sense of presence? Because that's what the yeah. world needs. The world does not need another perfect dog pose. Although yeah, I do. and that's the yoga, right? And 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 dog pose is useful. I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm not trying to make a higher or lower. I'm just saying that the emphasis in the West, certainly in the United States, is now on doing yoga. And I want yes. to be yoga. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, it sounds so simple and yet it's so not simple, but there, the practices, right, can, can, perhaps with the practices organically, also we can get there. Or, or we are there, just need the awareness. 
So I think what the practices do, you know, the yama, niyama, asana, uh-huh. all of that, the practices, the techniques, if you will, are sacred. And they, because they point to the true self, they mm-hmm. point us like tuning in a radio. No one knows what a radio is anymore, probably, but tuning in a radio just to this one sound. All of these techniques point toward this because when the vessel mm-hmm. vessel is in a finely tuned state, that which is the most true about us spontaneously arises. So it's yeah. very interwoven. Yeah. And it makes me also think of like, you know, one, like that yoga. It's like when you think one, but the first time I heard that, I couldn't, I couldn't even understand that. Yes, I know. What you just said that right now, it made me think of like this oneness for real, you know, just beautiful. And it's, thank you. It's a, to me, practicing is about remembering God. However, mm-hmm. God, the sacred, the feminine, she, he, consciousness, awareness, by all the yes. many things. But it's, it's practicing the presence of God. That's what we do when we practice our yoga, our yeah. asana, pranayama, or meditation, or pranayama, whatever we do, what techniques we use. So you have been practicing for, you just said, 53 years. Is that what you said? Yeah. And you've been teaching for how long? Well, I should be embarrassed to say this. <laughs> when I, I had been practicing for 10 months. Now, when I say practice. Uh-huh. What I mean is I took a yoga class one evening at the Y where I was working. We got to take them free. And I had this instant sense of recognition because I, I I went to yoga because I was giving getting some arthritis in my feet and I wanted to go dance again. And I always thought dance was sacred. And I, I would go to church. I taught vacation Bible school. I was very involved with church and you could sing to God. You could pray to God, you could give money for God, you could give your time for God, but no one ever talked about dancing to God or for mm-hmm. God. And so when I when I took a yoga class, I just it felt like recognition. Oh, here's somebody, and this gives me chills. Here's mm-hmm. someone who understands that move is a, is a is a song, a hymn of prayer. It's a sacred thing when that is our intention that it is a sacred thing. And so I got up the next morning and did what I remembered. So I crossed a line. I just, from one day, just taking a yoga class and the next day I was practicing yoga and everything happened really fast. I I had just become a vegetarian by total accident. Mm. And I was beginning to become aware of my health and da, da, da. And how old were you? I was 23. 23. Wow. That's all very young. I don't. So 10 months later, my teacher moved away and she asked me to take over a 200 person yoga program. (laughs) And I, in, you know, with the hubris of youth and without thinking at all, I said, sure, I'll teach. So I went in there a, a couple months later and sat down and everyone was lying down because that's what we used to start yoga with, Javasana. Oh, for those days. 
And <laughs> here's a, another story about that, if you if you wish that I yeah I I, I love that. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you know the story. It's in Teaching Yoga with Intention, my newest book. But okay, I sat there and I was, oh my god, what have I done? I had no lesson plan. I had no teacher training. <laughs> I just was a devoted practitioner and read everything I could get on yoga. And all of it made sense. The Sanskrit names, the philosophy, it was like, uh-huh. yes, yes, yes. But I had no training how to teach yoga. And I suddenly realized that when I sat down to run these 30 people. So I thought, mm, I, maybe I can sneak out and they won't notice. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and so I closed my eyes and I remembered my teacher saying, just take a deep three deep breaths before you make a decision, take three deep breaths before you say yes, before you say no, if you don't know what to do, you know, just three deep breaths. So I took these three deep breaths and I sensed behind me off to the right, my teacher It's so much so that I almost turned around to see if she had been hiding in the shadows to see how I would do. It was, mm-hmm. it gives me chills. It was so real And behind her was her teacher and then another and another. So very quickly, I mean, she said with a male Indian teacher, and then it was back into time in the midst of time, way back, there was a line, people, and it was a lineage. It was a lineage. It was like an initiation into a lineage. And so they were handing me, they were handing toward me a bucket with water. And as the bucket got nearer to me, I had a blinding flash of the obvious. Mm. I was the bucket, not the water. Mm. So I turned back around and in my mind and gave my attention to the class, opened my mouth, started teaching, haven't shut up since. And what has helped me and how I say it, without just boring people with this long story, is our yoga teaching comes through us, not from us. Love that. It's not me. I don't yeah. own yoga. I didn't invent it. It's not me. There's no Judith Hanson Lasseter yoga studio or Judith Hanson Lasseter style of yoga or it's mm-hmm. not ego. It's in the best moments of our teaching. It, it comes through us. And I call that you know how you go to teach and you sort of open your mouth and you say something that you never yeah. consciously thought? Yeah. And people, I call it run for the notebooks. They want to write it down. Yeah. And they want to write it down because they already knew it. And when you mm-hmm. said it, they recognized they knew it. Mm-hmm. And I call that plugging into the cosmic grid. <laughs> and that didn't come yeah. from me. That came through me. And so to me, what our job as teachers is to continue to educate ourselves, dedicate ourselves in humility, uh-huh. learning and opening and becoming a better and better conduit for that which we have so wonderfully been gifted in this life, the ability to do this. And besides, yeah. teaching yoga is the best job in the world because you get to do a yeah. barefoot in your pajamas. <laughs> And what you just said right now, it also makes me really think about the teachings being alive. So it's like when you are talking about being the conduit, right? It's it's almost like this yoga is alive today, tomorrow, yeah. yesterday. And it's just, are you 
really receiving and conveying it, right? When you're doing that, it's like, are you present enough? Are you really attuned in a way, you know? So that's why we practice. I like to say, practice for your students, teach for yourself. And what I mean by that is, when you're practicing, be, be, let, be open to new information coming through your body, mind, and soul. And maybe you think about a student in, in a certain pose has trouble and you, you practice with that, with this humble curiosity about how you might be able to work with them. But when you stand up in front of the class, if you have the thought, how can I make everyone happy? How can I teach in such a way that everyone loves me? You're lost. You have to teach Stand on your mat in your own light and teach what you know, what you've experienced. Let the truth come through you. People come to your yoga class because they can see, they get they get a hint of their true self through the practice with you. Mm-hmm. And because if I was going to go substitute for your yoga class, mm-hmm. 53 years of practice, 52 years teaching, physical therapist, PhD in yoga psychology, experience, traveled, taught on six continents, blah, blah, all that boring stuff. Author. Yeah. They wouldn't like me because I wasn't you. So what I'm saying is every mm-hmm. teacher should not copy any other teacher. We should, we should take in with great humility and gratitude that our gurus and our teachers who exist on all levels, especially those who have our same last name, they are our biggest gurus and they usually live with us in our ashram, also known as our house. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> so true. And so, so true. But we need to, when we train teachers, we need to not just fill them with information, but but encourage them to trust themselves first, learn from their practice, practice with dedication and and empathy and stand there and say and and say what is your own truth and not not to worry how it falls. Yes, I agree. And so I want to ask you some questions. I I know that you have written several books and two of your books are on restorative yoga. This the restorative yoga is the first I think that what brought me to you the first time. And mm-hmm. I read some of your books and I've also done some of your practices right and they're so I mean to me they're they were they're just so revealing and so beautiful and so something that I can really kind of drop into those postures and and rest and it's hard to describe unless you've actually experienced a restore a true restorative yoga class my question to you when I go to these different studios that I travel now and I have attended some classes that I were invited to as restorative. And when I, and sometimes they are not restorative. And there's a confusion a little bit between restorative and yin yoga or different modalities that are also restful. You're not moving. It's not a flow, but it's not the restorative that I was originally. So I wonder, I guess my, we could start there. My question would be, Judith, you, you can answer this if anyone. What is restorative yoga, and what what is this practice? You know, intent to awaken or or what's this? What is this practice of restorative yoga? We can start there to start clarifying all this. Yes. What my yeah. definition, and let me emphasize: this is my definition. Uh huh. Yoga is the use of props to support the body in positions of comfort 
and ease to facilitate relaxation and health. So most asana, especially now, not so much back in the 70s and even into the 80s, but now it's it's about doing yoga. You're always moving. And I have no argument with any specific type of asana practice. To me, it's not an either or situation. So, but yeah, when, and you practice, I've seen you do other forms yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not, it, there's nothing wrong with doing a flow. It has its advantages. But all I ask is that people end with a good 20 minute Shavasana because this is what I believe to be true. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everyone got very excited about studying stress. And there was a flurry of studies and the whole concept of stress entered the conversation and everyone talked about being stressed out and stress indexes and, you know, antidotes for stress. And now they began to have this strange idea that your psychological, emotional state might actually affect your body. <laughs> Let me take a side trip with that. You know, okay. When I started yoga, there was body on one end and mind on the other in the culture. And then slowly over time, it became a hyphenated word mindset hyphen body now it then it got to be mind body as one word but it's still dualistic and so i've made up this word graciously <laughs> <laughs> i've made up this word which is madi madi <laughs> it blends Maudi. body because they're not separate they're literally not separate so what what has evolved out of that understanding of stress is that now we find ourselves, most of us and our culture, and I think the world is, it's, everyone is exhausted, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually exhausted. Yes. Politics, from the war in the Ukraine, from the pandemic, from... This is a time of great social upheaval, which is a, a time mm -hmm. of great creativity and a great loss and gain. And every and this constant bombardment of instantly we know about horrible things that happened around the world because we have the Internet. And now we have a phone that's grown to our left hand and that we can't even sit for three minutes and wait for someone to come out of the store without looking at our phone. We're come, we're, and I'm guilty. I'm not talking about pointing any finger. Yeah. All caught up in this speeded up non-human rhythm, faster, more, better, quicker. And we're exhausted. We're just mm -hmm. exhausted. No one sleeps enough. I think you you might agree that that seems to be what's happening. So what my yeah, what the to do lists are endless. You no, know, just you drop one off the top and the one comes rolls up from the bottom. Yeah, because we have in our culture, especially, we greatly value doing, mm -hmm. and we have lost the rituals of being. So a hundred years ago, my grandmother was born in eighteen ninety. And my mother was in, in lived in a farmer's wife life and she worked hard. And my mother was born in 1918. So that was actually before people recognized the inherent right women have to vote. So this is fast social change. People had a Sabbath. 
Now, Sabbath, I think we need a Sabbath. It doesn't have to be religious. When do we take a break? We don't. We go on vacation, but we go to tennis camp. What I'm talking about is 20 minutes a day of nothing, of resting, and that is it. Mm -hmm. And it is a radical idea, but when my, probably true for you, your parents, your grandparents, they took Sunday off. When I grew up in Texas. Oh, yeah. And on Sunday, a lot of things were closed. Oh, yeah. A lot of things were closed on Sunday. And it's still mm-hmm. true. My daughter lives in Austria with her husband and twins. And they they have to shop on Saturday because a lot of times, I mean, you can go to like a quick little stop and shop 7-Eleven kind of thing and get junky food. But if you want food, real f- you can't get it because everything is closed. And people go on hikes with their family. Right. And, right. And we have destroyed all those rituals. I remember some years ago when my, my daughter was a teenager, I looked at my, we were in, we had, we're at the mall. It was 745 at night. And I was sitting in a dressing room while she tried on an endless pair of jeans, all of which she said, make her, made her look fat, which she isn't. And anyway, if she was, who cares? <laughs> and I thought to myself, what am I doing? I should be home, lying on the couch, reading a book, you know, by the fire. So we yeah. lost a lot of the rituals. Sunday, Sunday, you know, we go to church on Sunday and big family gathering for lunch on Sunday. We kind of rituals. It doesn't have to be religious, but we, but that was a for, that that created a form, a container for oh, it. Yeah. And so we've lost a lot of that because time and place don't matter anymore. We can be on the Internet. We, it doesn't. You don't even have to be home to watch your favorite TV show at eight o'clock because you can always watch it later. So you can cram more things in your life. And I'm not ta- pointing fingers at anybody any more than I'm pointing them at myself. Right. So, so what, restorative comes to play this yeah. role. That right. Yes. And I double dog dare you or anyone. This is a Texas thing. <laughs> to to really set yourself up in a with the propping, which really facilitates relaxation, cover your eyes, put something behind your ankles, your knees, you know, so they're bent in your cover up, be warm and, and really go deeply into a state of relaxation. Set your clock for 20 minutes. It is a gift. Shavasana is a gift that we give ourselves and the world at the same time. Because when my students, after a 20 to 30 minute shavasana, and they come out of that, not only has their sympathetic nervous system downregulated and their parasympathetic upregulated, but they just sit there silently. And that is a state of samtosha, which mm-hmm. is yama. So the niyamas are about practicing something. The yamas tell us what not to do. The niyamas tell us what to do. And one of them is samtosha. It says in the niyamas, it can read in Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra, mm-hmm. other places. There's lots of sutras, different books and studies that we are to practice samtosha mm. actively. And to me, that's what shavasana is. It's the choosing of contentment. 
And they, and so I, when I teach classes now at the end of Shavasana, I ring my bells and I say my namaste and maybe live like the lotus at home in the muddy water and my little ritual. And then I ask people to not to speak until they leave the room. Mm, I love that. Just until they leave the room. And what they tell me is, you know, I didn't turn the radio on on the way home. I just rolled down the window and let the air, smell the air and just enjoyed. Oh, that's beautiful. All the way home. And I think this is what the world needs. Yes, we need the asana. Yes, we need uh, more active practice. We need we yeah. need to fresh air every day. We need there, but we yeah. are missing because it's no longer offered to us by our culture. We've it's dropped off the edges. So my grandfather, who was a farmer, used to come in from farming, and he'd come in. They called it dinner down in Texas. Lunch was dinner, and and the nighttime meal was supper. So it's a southern yeah. thing for dinner. And noontime, my grandmother would fix it up from a lot of things out of their garden, you know. And then he would go over in the corner and lie down on the floor near the fan because it was hot. And he'd put his, pull his cowboy hat down over his nose and he'd lie there. And I said, he'd say, I'm going to have me a little lie down. <laughs> and he was basically doing Shabbos. Yeah. One time I was living, I went back to Texas, lived there for a while and then came back to California and I was asked to teach a class at a high school they were studying not in a religious way but they were studying world religions or world cultures and they 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 wanted to understand the philosophy of yoga right so they wanted me to teach them some yoga so here are these 16 year old juniors in high school right I'm trying to teach them about yoga this was before Madonna did yoga so it wasn't Mm -hmm. they wouldn't even know who Madonna was now but anyway (laughs) uh so I was trying to explain a little bit about Shavasana and this one young man raised his hand and he said to me, oh, I get it. Your body sleeps and your mind watches. Oh, and I looked at him and I said, yes. And then I like wrote it down because <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, yeah, we need to train people to do this. We need to train children to do it. We need to train adults to do it we need to practice it ourselves we need people don't asana teachers don't teach shavasana this is my theory based on nothing that teachers don't teach shavasana because they're not doing it in their own practice yeah that makes sense so you you said in restorative yoga the use of props aids you in the relaxation can you please explain this what is the role of the props in this context of restorative yoga because or let me ask you this like part of it isn't when you're in let's say just for the listener if you if you haven't been to one of those classes I'm talking about blocks and bolsters and blankets and whatever else right maybe eye pillow but in some cases you're putting placing the bolsters and the blocks to take the sensation so like if my, let's say a posture, supta bara konasana, right? If the soles of my feet are together and my knees apart and I'm putting a lot of weight on my joint, my, my hip joints, then how, if I'm overextending, how am I going to, I would think that that would get in the way of me going into this parasynthetic nervous system, real deep relaxation. If my body is now having some kind of trigger concern of that position because also I would like to say this 
not to you, but the, for the listeners, we're talking about holding, staying with this pose for an extended period of time. And I'm not talking about 20 seconds or 30 seconds. Okay. It's a little longer. So yeah, I know this is kind of a technical question, but it is important to me because I am trying to also clarify a little bit of the distinguish of why is it that the props are ne- you know useful and necessary and, and how it affects your practice. So I thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. I think it's an excellent question. So the reason we use the props is because lie down on a hard floor like my I love a, a, a hardwood floor for yoga <laughs> yeah me too and I, I just like hardwood floors anyway but if yeah. you lie down on a hardwood floor for 15 to 20 minutes and 15 minutes is the minimum in shavasana some of the story poses you, you keep for five minutes or 10 minutes but some of them okay. you stay 15 20 minutes and shavasana please stay 15 and maybe 20 that's the best because restorative yoga is not about stretching. It's about opening. Ah, see, that, that's a huge thing, what you just said right there. Yeah, that's how it's different from yin yoga. And I know Sarah and I and I think her practice is beautiful. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of confusion between yin yoga and re- I've I've been I've been to quote unquote restorative yoga invited to go and it ended up that it was a yin yoga. There was no props, but yet it was called restorative on the schedule. Yes, exactly. So yin yoga is still about stretching. Uh-huh. It still has, and it's, this is not bad. I'm not criticizing it. It's right, not, right. It's just that it's not restorative in the way that I mean restorative because you're still stretching. There still can be ambition in the action. And there's right. absolutely no ambition in restorative yoga. So ambition is about the future. Can I reach my toes? Can I stretch further? Can I do more? And yin is a lovely practice. And I recommend people try it, see if it it fits their, you know, like the Cinderella idea that it fits their yoga foot, literally or Uh metaphorically, if this is what speaks to them. So, but, so when you lie down on a hard, hardwood floor, might even be cold. Uh Uh-huh. It's going to be comfortable because your bones are going to, hit the floor and you're not going to be comfortable. So we use the props to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we put something under the head. So the head is in slight flexion, the head and neck. And so you're, you're comfortable and you prop the wrists up, you prop the knees. And generally in Shavasana, the basic relaxation pose, which is the Tadasana of restorative yoga. is this mm-hmm. Yeah. Asana, is that when you when you have the props you a feel comfortable and b you feel supported now when a human being feels supported it can be financially socially physically emotionally mentally when we feel supported our response neurologically is to let go mm, i love that thank god you came to help me yes so Shavasana is a massive exhalation, metaphoric exhalation. So you have this. Yeah. Well, your- and it feels safe. What you just said to so me feels safe. safe. And I, if I'm safe, I can relax. And then I have this last theory, which is especially in this pose, which is usually done at the end of many other classes, but is the Tadasana of restorative yoga, as I said, mm-hmm. is you put the joints in flexion. 
the wrists are in flexion, the vertebral columns in flexion, the hips, the knees, the ankles, everything's in flexion. And think about embryological development and the life in the womb. The baby is curled in and down. The baby's curled in. The, the fingers are curled in. The, the elbows are curled. The shoulders, every, you know what it looks like. And you see their little legs crossed in there. They're all mm -hmm. fine as inflection, rounded. Mm -hmm. not doing backbends in there, although sometimes it felt like it when I was with my three pregnancies, they were doing backbends or sun salutations jumping around. But mm -hmm. inflection, and I have this theory that when we we create in ourselves our uh, help our students create this this sense of flexion in all the joints the nervous system remembers that and it it remembers the shadows of that 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 was how it felt safe in the womb and most people might start going to sleep on their back but then what do you do right before you go to sleep you turn to your side mm -hmm. and so it's yeah. I'm, I'm suggesting this is a theory based on nothing but my own mm -hmm. opinion. experience is that or we could get fancy and call it a hypothesis which is just they're all a bunch of guesses is <sighs> that's what's happening and then the, the four things we really need is to be still quiet dark and warm mm. nowhere in our lives do we really have a high value on stillness. Almost nowhere. You even you're everybody moves around and, and during sleep all the time. And I've forgotten what how many minutes at least people move every certain amount of minutes. Mm -hmm. But to be still on the floor, to be quiet. And that means as a teacher, I may start you out on an image of resting on the golden couch of Vishnu in silence, stillness, softness, and ease. You know, I may say a few words for three or four minutes and sort of paint a picture mm -hmm. for you, but then I stop talking. Mm. Stop talking for the whole time. And this is another one that's big, I think, because I see a lot of music and talking and things added to experiences. Yeah, so this is the second, still quiet, these four things I'm, I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Because he, think about it logically. Uh -huh. Two things is happening for the student in, in, in Shavasana. If I'm talking the whole time, they're doing one of two things. Number one, they're listening to me, which means uh -huh. they're not having their own experience. Uh -huh. Or two, they're not listening to me, so why am I talking? <laughs> and I think this is the can be the only place that some people ever have the luxury of being introverted and and silent, really being silent. And what people will say to me sometimes when they first start is they'll say, "I went somewhere else." I'm like, "Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you want you turn toward your." your inner wisdom and your true self. I may not say that in those words, depending on the context. Mm -hmm. That's, or, or they'll say to me, I can't do Shavasana. It, it agitates me. I just lay there and I was just so agitated. And I always smile at them and I say, congratulations, you're making progress. They go, what? And okay, I, good. I was going to say, what's your response to that? Because yeah. I get that a lot. Yeah, I say to them, for I can be grin, I say, congratulations, you're making progress. <laughs> what I say, what is happening 
is not that this pose is agitating you. The pose is a container which allows you to experience the agitation that is already there. Which stays in the back of our mind because we're so externally focused. But when we no longer have any distractions of sound or movement or talking or anything, suddenly that which was so invisible fills our entire experiential screen. I I had this experience so profoundly when I was in physical therapy school and we did full body cadaver dissection. And so Mm. I, I know it sounds scary to some people, but it was such a blessing to actually see the lungs, see the liver, see the inside of the knee seeing exactly how yeah. to, I mean, it's just such a blessing, but what hit me because, you know, I'm a yogi and I have those kind of glasses. I see everything through the lens of yoga and consciousness is that it was so obvious because that person lying there had everything that I had, but the spirit wasn't there. And so because mm-hmm. of absence of that which animates us it was so obvious that there is something else besides all these parts fit together like a machine why yes yes the soul the spirit whatever you want to call it yeah the life force life force it wasn't animating this gives me chills yeah that gives me chills too so i'm like it was a spiritual experience yeah so, so we have still, quiet, dark. It's really important that people cover their eyes up lightly or there's dark in there. Because mm-hmm. light is the, when you're relaxing, because light is the most powerful stimulus to the nervous system that we have. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Life on the planet Earth has lived with dark light, dark light. As evolution occurred, as p- people appeared on this, it's embedded in our cells, in our circadian rhythms, in our nervous system. In you know, so we are t- attuned to wake up when it gets light. Mm-hmm. So if you have trouble sleeping, I suggest for three nights you only have candlelight in your house when it gets dark. You don't look at a computer screen or anything, a phone. I know that's and that's you know, yeah. No, I have a friend who does that and she turns all everything is candlelight after, you know, when it gets after sunset and it's just she loves she said that practice completely changed her sleep and everything. And her and you know how much you Beautiful. love looking at a fire? Yes. Why? But it's intrinsically relaxing. My second son went on this three week at one point when he was 16 or something. He went on a three week open boat sailing in the Bay of Cortez, the Sea of Cortez, now by Mexico. Mm. And they were camping out. Now, this is the kid that wanted to always stay up till one o'clock. Mm-hmm. So he was on this trip for three weeks and he's, he came back and he said, mom, you know, we'd be sitting around the campfire after dinner and pretty soon it'd be like 7.30, quarter of eight. And everyone was just so tired. He said, I just wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> that yes. did it. That did it. Just not having all of the light of the city and the commotion and all that. That makes total sense. Still quiet, dark, and warm. You cannot mm-hmm. relax when you're cold. You so- can Oh my God, I'm so, this is so true. And I got to tell you, since you're on the, I'm a person that I get my extremities cold very quick. 
And when I have my hands cold or my feet, that takes over. Why is that? Because your body doesn't know you're not freezing to death because that's the Uh part, you know, and so that's not the core. And so what, and and I don't know if you've ever read any articles or anything or or know about Roger Cole. He studied with me Mm -hmm. for many years. He's a PhD physiologist. And so he does all these fun experiments on yoga poses in his lab sometimes. But he, he said in order to relax and or sleep, because relaxation is on this beginning of the continuum towards sleep. And Shavasana is on the way to sleep, but we want people to stop before they go to sleep and, and just hang out in that totally that, re- Yeah, that relaxed, momentum. Stop going to sleep. If people go to sleep in Shavasana every week, it's because they're actually sleep deprived. So mm-hmm. good so, point. Die too. That always goes to sleep in like two seconds. So mm-hmm. so anyway, so uh, when you're lying there, people will lie there, and this happens a million times a day, I'm sure, in yoga. This has happened to me so many times in my classes. People lie there and they've been moving around and everything, so they don't feel cold. And they lie there and say, No, I never get cold. No, I'm good. I'm good. And they lie there, and then literally two minutes, three minutes before I'm going to ring the bell, they reach over to the side, they grab their blanket, and they lay it over their belly and their chest. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do neurologically because what you need to have warm is your hands and your feet. So wear socks. You know, you can't go to sleep at night if your feet are cold and you have to finally drag yourself out and get yeah. back. So, so your hands and feet are warm. So there's a way of propping the hands and light, lightly cover, covering them and covering the feet. And I usually suggest, you know, I live in a coldish place. It's not super hot here. Uh, the average temperature in San Francisco is 55 degrees. So it never gets, it doesn't freeze, but it's, you know, 65, mm-hmm. you know, it's often 58 in the day. So it's nice. It's very, you know, you can wear great clothes because you don't, you know, you can always wear a sweater. Uh, but I tell people, you know, arms, arms, I mean, hands and feet really need to be warm. And the core temperature, this is interesting, needs to go down. When you go to sleep, your core temperature drops a little bit, Mm -hmm. but you need the extremities to be warm. So still quiet, dark, and warm are really four prerequisites for being able to relax. And I encourage teachers to experiment with, if they're used to giving five-minute shavasana, under no circumstances, tell your class you're going to give them a 10-minute shavasana. No, never tell them. It's like if you want to introduce tofu to your family under no <laughs> dinner's tofu. I'm eating a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Make it really good and don't say anything. And that yeah. Say, what is this? Let's tell you. Really? So you have to be sneaky to be a yoga teacher. Yeah. What, what you I tell them to do is introduce one prop, a really good head support. And you can look on YouTube. There's videos of my daughter, Lizzie Lassiter, showing videos of how exactly to set up the head support that that we like so much in restorative yoga and just do the head support and leave them seven or eight minutes and then ring the bells or say the chant or whatever have you yeah and then gradually let's try something under the knees this week Mm -hmm. i love that approach them like they're a skittish horse (laughs) no you don't you throw the saddle on and let's go. Everything's wrong. We're doing this whole new thing. No, 
Yeah, we got to sneak things in sometimes. Like once I was teaching at a at a studio that required that I had to have music in all of the classes. And so I would just pause the music. You know, when the music would end, I would like wait like three, four, five minutes until the next one would come because I was sneaking in that silent, you know, in between the songs so we could like actually experience what it was. Uh, Now you've been outed, everyone knows. But (laughs) tell me this, did it, did, did people like it or did they complain? No, they loved it. And they, and, and people started coming to my classes because they wanted more of the quiet. And, uh, and and that was shared with me. And so it was really a, a really awesome way to kind of work around that. You know? Yes. So, so, you know, move, I have this theory, move in the direction of, so if, if someone is drinking five Coca-Colas a day and they say to you, oh, I'm only drinking two, you don't go, well, you should stop. You say, oh, great. You're moving in the direction of, and I always tell my students, especially my beginners, you're moving in the direction of the pose. That's all we need. Move in the direction. What I want to point out is it is highly likely that the weekly student, you know, the beginner, advanced beginner, Mm -hmm. mostly who we teach, they're familiar with the poses, but not the, you know, we we normally don't teach all our classes where people can do handstand lotus in the center of the room. You know, that's not how we teach. So it's highly likely that these are very ambitious, dedicated students, workers, caregivers, you know, this, your class and those 20 minutes might be the only time in their week that they can let go with nothing expected of them and be held by the props and by the simplicity of shimmering silence. And it feeds their soul. Do not rob them of the silence. How precious is that? There's not a lot of opportunities in life for that. So you're used to be mm. people that work out in the fields by themselves, mm. on the porch swing, or go yeah. for a walk through the woods, or yeah, not as pulled outside. I mean, life has always been difficult. I'm not yeah. trying to paint a bucolic paradise. Yeah, like where there's you know. Well, even even when you take trips now, like you you even mentioned before, it's like a lot of times it's okay. What's the schedule now that we got here? Now you're gonna go from point A to B, and you're gonna do this and meet in the morning for this, and then in the app, and it's like, oh my god, you know, I I'm already like I don't get to stop a lot because you're already busy with work, with life, with whatever it is that people have, and then you take a vacation and you're just going from point A to B to C to D, and it's it's just. This whole thing about having to pack everything, it's just, it's a lot. Crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So when my kids were growing up, I always say one of the weekend, they were in school, one of the days has got to be a pajama day. And often they love that on Saturday or whatever. So Sunday would be our pajama day. (laughs) It just sounds glorious. That's what I'm laughing. I love it. I want a pajama day too. I'm going to talk about that in my household. Listen, honey, nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you've done enough. Now you can have a pajama day. Yeah. No one. One of the situations that with the restorative that I was talking with the schedule, maybe it just crossed my mind when we were talking that sometimes studios may think that they don't have enough props. Right. 
So is there a way to work around that if someone was trying to deliver or what would be your, I mean, maybe your advice is just do a long Shavasana and really cover them with the blanket. Cause I, I do find that sometimes the would say, okay, what's the head, what's the thing that's right. Not allowing you to do that whole experience. Maybe there's not enough props. That could be a concern. Every studio nowadays has some props and so right. important part of the body to support is the head and neck. And it's not done by making a roll and putting it in the back of the neck. That that lifts the chin up. So if you are you sitting, you're sitting up right now, I imagine. I am sitting up. Yeah. So all the listeners, you can do this with us, please. Our invisible sangha that's all gathered together through the magic of the modern world is if you're sitting up, sit in front of your sitting bones. Mm-hmm. And not on your sitting bones or not back. So your diaphragm is completely free. And let your chin slightly drop. When that happens, there's an urge to close your eyes and to go inside, is there not? Yes, I did that automatically. Who knows that? So you go to church, you go to temple, you go to synagogue, let us pray. No one ever says, let us pray, lift your heads in prayer. What do they always say? Drop mm-hmm. your head, drop your heads, bow your heads in prayer, right? Or meditation group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Physical act of slightly dropping the chin stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system so down regulates stress now it's the opposite of stress so if you imagine someone lying down if their chin is sticking way up or you you put a roll under their neck you're going to make their chin stick up and that's going to stimulate the brain this is neurology this is not woo woo Mm -hmm. so what i do is i fold a blanket two-thirds of the way and i put the long end under the top of their shoulders then I roll the outsides under again. This is on YouTube. Okay. Lizzie Lassiter, L-I-Z-Z-I-E, Lizzie Lassiter. Okay. I will, I'll link it on show notes. All right. You roll the sides under and you lift the head up a little bit. So a number of things are happening in the upper body functionally, the shoulder, the neck, and the thoracic spine all work together. They're a function, they're a functional unit. So if you support a little bit down toward the shoulder blades underneath with part of the blanket and then you underneath the shoulders and then the base of the neck, C7, T12, the big bump, you support there. and you So you're supporting that whole functional unit. Then you And then the sneaky thing is when you roll the blanket under on the sides and make it be like two rolls of, you know, two long columns of fat rolls on the side of the head, that feels really good because when people go to sleep, if they're lying on their back, they, their head rolls to the side. That's not how you know they fall asleep in class. Their head rolls to the side. So I found that if you make that roll on the side and you hold their head still, they're less likely to fall asleep. Uh, so I would start with the head support. Okay. So that would be like something to focus on. You might ask the students if they're regular to bring a light, a light blanket to cover with and make sure Mm -hmm. they have for either air conditioning or winter. Uh, You know, Teddy Roosevelt, the famous president who who I Mm -hmm. love because he's the one that created the national parks. Thank God. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, do the best you can with what you've got where you are. Yes. Love that. To do, you can lie on the floor and put your legs up the wall. I would say five minutes too much longer and you get, you could get hyperextending in the knees, but props are just part of restorative yoga. That's part of the problem. That's, that's the, that's the situation. 
your relationship now to teaching. You know, we talked about being in the present moment and really kind of you being the cup and the water flows, right? So so this is interesting because a lot of times people get so caught up in in almost like making a to-do list, right? Of what, like, I'm going to make my teaching, put everything on the paper, what has to happen in this teacher training on Saturday or Sunday or whatever. So that's a really beautiful thing to, I would love for you to speak a little bit about that. And and how do you manage the, you know, managing the curriculum of your trainings and all that, and yet being present to also the room and what needs to come through that moment? Because you've been teaching for so long, I'm assuming that this is just, do you even need like a plan for your trainings anymore? Like, how does it go? Yeah. You know what I mean? I need a plan so I'll have something to reject. (laughs) I used to say, you know, raise your children in some religion so they'll have something to reject because then they have something to to fight against and they can turn and find their own path. It might be that religion or something else. I don't know. But here's the thing. First of all, people shouldn't compare themselves to me or anyone. Everyone is different. Some people, my daughter likes, you know, I have a curriculum, a very specific curriculum for my, are you talking about online or are you talking about live? Either, what are live, let's say live. I have an outline. I I say today I want to cover these three poses. That might be my outline and maybe a few few notes. But I've done that course so many times. I don't read it off, I I don't read it off a list because then someone asks me a question and, and, and that provides the learning moment. So I remember a group of physical therapy friends, therapists, friends of mine, we decided to go take this you know, class for our continuing education. And mm-hmm. I don't even remember what the topic of it was, but we paid like 150 bucks to go for this two day, lec- this one day, whole day lecture. It looks not cheap. And the man who was running it, what he did was, it was a big auditorium full of people. Mm-hmm. He had an outline that he projected up on the screen behind him. And then he stood at the podium and we had the outline, the complete word for word outline was given to us in a notebook when we got there. And then he proceeded to read the notebook. We left in 15 minutes. Like we can read mm-hmm. the book. He, and, and I had a professor once who said the definition of a college lecture is the process by which the professor's notes are transferred to the student's notes without going through the mind of either. That's beautiful. Uh, that's great. So I, I, I get that. I get that. Yeah. So some people like to have notes. I never, I never started out having notes, uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm right and people who use notes are wrong. You need what mm-hmm. I make the notes and they're a jumping off place. And then I start teaching and then an hour's gone by in a three hour teacher training. And I haven't looked at them again. I said, oh yes, I want to cover this and this. So nobody's stopping me. We got to cover this for the, you know, because there's mm-hmm. just a lot of commonality and mutuality and definition of yeah. terms I want them to get. But yeah. You took, if you, like, I have assistants who come and assist me in my restorative level one, and they did level one, like in 2005 or level in 12, and they've taken level two, and they come and I say, how can you stand to hear this? They said, because I always learn something. You're never exactly the same. Yeah. You know, and, and so I like to say that a yoga class should be like, like a wedding, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. You need to. <laughs> Enough. There needs to be a certain repeti- repetition. 
but also maybe you teach trikonasana virtually every time, but there's something new every week, like that you've learned and you've studied and you want to do. So something old, something new, something borrowed, you're borrowing props and something blue, the yoga mat, like, or the yoga block. So it's just, a yeah. but I think having a, 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 some repetition, but I tend to think of the repetition in a class as, it's like starting, how do I start? I used to have my students always come in and just like, especially in the evening, just lie down, put their legs up the wall while we were getting settled. Sometimes I played Krishna Das because I love Krishna Das. Mm-hmm. I call him the Willie Nelson of chanting. It's <laughs> that kind of very pleasant to me. Gravel. He does. Yeah. All right. And I've met him and he's delightful and I like him. But anyway, or something like that. And to start. But not so much in the morning because people have just gotten up and they're there at 930 and they and then I would do the bigger poses like standing poses and mm-hmm. and maybe then we'd go do a group of standing poses then we'd go do maybe we'd do a few back bends or maybe a, a forward bend or two or work on twist a little bit then we'd go do an inversion whatever level of inversion they were doing and then we'd come back to the floor something quiet maybe a restorative mm-hmm. pose in shavasana so there's a rhythm, there's a choreography to a class to me. In fact, my daughter and I are, and Mary Richards, who works with us sometimes, we we're developing a course on sequencing. It'll be out next year. The science of sequencing. Sequencing choreography. It's just incredible to me. So fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. It's like how, what pose comes after what pose? And yeah. Why? So I, I hope that answered your question. No, it truly did. And thank you so much for your time. And you've shared so much with us on Life on Earth podcast today. So I'm very grateful. I just wanted to also tell you your book, Living Your Yoga. I read this book the first time 20 years ago, and that was my first introduction to you. I absolutely love that book. And for the listeners, you have multiple books now. Your last one was... Um, your last one is teaching yoga with intention, correct? Right. Yeah. And so if so, if someone's listening in, do you have one that you recommend to start with or just whatever they feel pulled? Well, and I will link all the books on show notes. Oh, my God. There's 11 of them. <laughs> it's very difficult for me to say. I think yeah. that. I think it depends. If you're a teacher, then I think you're going to very much like uh, Living Your Yoga, the nonviolent communication book, What We Say Matters. You're going to like teaching yoga with intention. But you also might really like Yoga Myths, which is the subtitle is what we need to learn and unlearn to have a safe and happy yoga practice. There's a lot of teaching in yoga that, that seem to be like, absolute rules that actually go against the anatomy, neurology, and movement patterns of the body that it wants to do. Thank you. I have last thing, it's called a year of living your yoga was just a saying for every day of the year. Like a little lesson, a yoga lesson for every day of the year. And one of them is once in your life, eat a brownie for breakfast. Don't be so rigid about your shake and your this and like, oh, can we all yeah. morning and like, you know, like okay. live life, you know, once in a yeah. while, I eat a brownie for breakfast and it's not too much sugar, too much chocolate, da, 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 but do it. Anyway. I want to, I want to do that like tomorrow. 
That's right up my alley. Well, thank you, Judith, so much. And I'm going to link everything on show notes and your website. And I hope all the students can continue this journey with you because obviously you have so much to share and we're blessed to have you on planet Earth. So thank you. Maybe I'll, you're welcome, sweetheart. And maybe I'll see you in New Orleans. Yes, you're coming uh, 2024. So yes, and I will be sharing about all that as well. It's a training. It's a restorative training. First week of December. That is, that is perfect. Next year. Well, yeah, just, I'll be sh- I'll be sharing about that too with all the community and the students. As I say goodbye, I'd like to say to all the listeners, the teachers especially, who have moments where they drive in a rainy, cold night to teach their class and there's three people there, or someone forgot to, to turn on the heat and it's cold in the studio and you just really want to be home. And you feel discouraged and you slept your props out of it in the rain and all the things we go through as we are, are teaching and building our teaching. Uh, I just want you to hear with your heart that you're not alone. That there is a whole silent, invisible sangha of yoga teachers throughout the world that are, that are we are all connected. So I honor your dedication and your sacrifice completely. And and thank you so much for inviting me on your your podcast. Um, Teaching yoga is a privilege, not a right. And I'm humbly grateful to be able to do that. Let me say, please put your hands together in front of your heart. Yes. Namaste. Namaste. May we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Goodbye. Namaste. Thank you for listening to Life on Earth Podcast. Follow the show and share this episode. Sending you lots of love.